If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, whether they're in paperback or tablet or phone, would you turn to the book of Acts, please, chapter 1, beginning with verse 3 and reading through to verse 14. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And would you stand, please, in honor of God's word as we read it. To these, the apostles, he, Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was up, taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Sabbath day's journey is a little less than half a mile. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. Our Father, we thank you that we can look at your word, that we can study what it has for us, what it means. We thank you, Lord, that you can give us encouragement in these days as we begin a new year. We ask, Lord, your blessings in this hour now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. The past few weeks for the disciples had been a whirlwind. Just 40 days earlier, they had seen Jesus die on a cross. On that day, all their dreams and their hopes and what they had looked for the future all crashed away. They hid themselves away in fear and suffering. They were afraid that they were going to face the same fate that Jesus did. After all, if they had crucified the leader, they would come after the others. But three days after Jesus died, he appeared to them alive again. Their Lord had risen from the dead. There was hope after all, but still they wavered. They were up, they were down. And then the Lord took them aside and he began to teach them some truths that they desperately needed to know. He's going away. And he tells them that he's leaving his work, his ministry, in their hands. They needed to know what the Lord expected of them. 
and he taught them. They needed to know what they were doing, and he taught them. They needed comfort for their troubled hearts, and he gave it to them. He spent 40 days with his men, instructing them, comforting them, spending time with them. I want you to look for just a minute in the theater of your mind, in your mind's eye, and picture this scene. Jesus and the disciples are standing on the Mount of Olives. And in front of them is the Kidron Valley, and across a little bit above them is the city of Jerusalem. Picture that in your mind. After spending 40 days with Jesus after his, after his resurrection, the disciples are standing there, and he gives them some final words of instruction. And then, while they're watching him, he begins to rise up, ascending into the heavens, and suddenly, this Jesus who had risen from the dead is gone. He's disappeared from their sight. He's taken from their presence, and they're left in bewilderment without him. In that moment, the disciples are filled with more questions than they have answers, and doubtless filled with many confusing thoughts. And I think that's appropriate for this morning, because as we face this new year of 2016, many of us have confusing thoughts and doubts and fears and wonders. What's going to happen this year? Can this year be any better than last year? Last year was a fiasco for America. Can 2016 be any better? We don't know. But I'm going to share with you some things this morning that we can know. While they were there standing, looking up into the sky, angels, messengers of God appeared to them and said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up, looking into heaven? The angels simply asked, What are you looking at? In other words, what has your attention? What are you focused on? What are you looking at? I want to point out some issues that occupied the minds of the disciples that day that Jesus ascended back into heaven. The, those same issues are on the minds of many of us here this morning, on the minds of many of God's children. So let's explore them together, and we'll hear what the Word of God has for us today. First of all, it was a compelling departure. This was no ordinary departure. When Jesus stands with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, instructing them in their task and truth, he's suddenly taken up into heaven. Gravity suddenly loses its power. That's never happened to anyone that they've ever seen or heard of before. Gravity has lost its power over Jesus. After all, it is subject to his power. He created it. But he began to ascend up into the sky until he disappeared into a cloud. I wish in a way that that word cloud had been translated a little bit differently. Because when we think of heaven and a, and a cloud, we think of sitting on a cloud, strumming on a harp. Most of us in here know better than that, but that's the picture that most people have of what heaven is. But that's not what this word cloud means. The word cloud here refers to the glory cloud that surrounds the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory cloud. In other words, when it came time for Jesus to leave this world, the Father received him up into the Father's own glory and took him home. After Jesus ascends to the heavens, his disciples look steadfastly toward heaven in verse 10. Verse 11 says that they were gazing up into heaven. The words look steadfastly and gazing translate the same word, and it means to fasten the eyes upon, 
to look intensely at something. It means that they were transfixed on Jesus as he ascended back into heaven, amazed at what was taking place. And we would be too. But they really shouldn't have been amazed. After all, Jesus had told them it would happen. In John 16, 28, he says, I came forth from the Father. I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. So they should have expected that. This transfixed looking and gazing of the disciples into heaven speaks more than them just standing there in rapt amazement. It suggests that they were looking after him like men who were worried that they'd lost someone forever. It suggests a look of hopeless bewilderment, of sadness, of broken-hearted astonishment. Perhaps that's why the angels issued a mild rebuke to the disciples in verse 10. For the disciples, the ascension of the Lord back into heaven changed everything. Their world had been turned upside down in the last week, and now it's changed completely. For the last three years, these men had spent nearly every moment with Jesus. They'd left family, they'd left friends, they'd left their businesses, all of that to follow Jesus. And for three years, they did. And now, now he's gone. And now they don't know what to do. And I'm certain that the Lord's departure left those disciples confused and concerned. They didn't understand, at least completely, why he had to leave them, why he had to return to the Father. But, beloved, I think there's two reasons. There are many, but I, I pointed out two reasons why Jesus had to go to heaven while his men stayed here. If Jesus had not gone away, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, could not have come. John, uh, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. These men have been walking by sight. They lived with Jesus. They heard his voice. They saw his miracles that happened in front of them. They felt his touch. He was real. He was tangible. He was there. When Jesus died on the cross, the disciples were filled with fear. And we read about that in John chapter 20. Even after the resurrection, some of them nearly quit. John 21 says that they were ready to go back to their boats and go fishing again. These men were so accustomed to be with Jesus that they didn't believe that they could possibly function without him. But when Jesus leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, these men will learn to walk by faith and not by sight. The Spirit of God will be in them to empower them for service. They hadn't experienced that before. But it's just as he is in us. This same Jesus, remember that. This same Jesus. He's the same yesterday. In creation, he created the earth. This same Jesus. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Jesus wanted his men to accomplish great things that he would accomplish through the Holy Spirit. John 14, Jesus, in talking with his disciples just before his death, said, most assuredly I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will, will he do because I go to my Father. Beloved, we enjoy those same blessings today that those disciples did. Because Jesus went away and the Holy Spirit came, he dwells within every child of God to lead them, to guide them, to help them, 
to comfort them, instruct them in the ways of God. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll help you. He'll comfort you and he'll instruct you just as he did them. And the second reason, I think, is that Jesus went to heaven to make intercession for them. When he ascended back into heaven, the Bible tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. I love that verse in Hebrews where it speaks of that. He sat down. His job of redemption was finished. Think about that for a minute. Put yourself back in those days. The Jews worshiped God. But once a year, the high priest had to go in and confess the sins of the people. And he would do this annually, every single year. But Jesus, when he offered himself as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, when he offered himself, he went up and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The position of authority, the position of power, his job of redemption was all done. He had finished his work. He's there today as your representative before the Father, guaranteeing that where he is, we will one day be there also. We have a representative on the inside, beloved. Our Savior is in the presence of God the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. That is, when sin creeps into our lives, and it does, when Satan accuses us before the throne of God, and he does, we have a Savior who says, oh, wait a minute, that debt's already been paid. That debt's paid in full. It says that we have an advocate with the Father, none other than Jesus himself. His presence in heaven is one reason why the saints of God are eternally secure. And then the Savior is ever interceding with the Father. We're both able to stand now and later blameless in the Father's sight. There's a little verse tucked away in the book of Jude that says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Think of that. No matter what you do, no matter what sins you have committed in the past, if you're a child of God, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you stand blameless, faultless before the Father, before the throne of God. Jesus went to heaven also so that he could return for his people someday. Before he went to the cross, he promised his people that he would return for them. The angels there on the Mount of Olives reaffirmed that promise as the scripture closes. His promise is repeated again in Revelation 22, verse 20. That verse is a short verse, just four words. Surely, you can count on it, surely I come quickly. So Jesus is coming again. All we as believers have ever known that Jesus is not here physically with us. We don't see him physically here. I want to remind you that while he's not here with us physically, he's physically present in heaven. And one day, very soon, he'll return for his people and he'll take us to heaven. One element that occupied the minds of the disciples that day was the ascension of Jesus into glory, the presence of his Father. And we as Christians would do well to think about that, where he is what he's doing now. So there was a compelling departure, but there was also a confusing future that faced the disciples. With Jesus going away, the disciples were concerned about what the future held for them and the work of the Lord. 
they asked Jesus about the future. When are you going to deliver the kingdom? And about when they could expect him to establish the kingdom of God. They want to know if that time had already come or if they have to wait. The answer that the Lord gives them is anything but clear. Jesus tells them essentially that such things, such matters, are not their business. In the vernacular of today, it would be like we ask Jesus a question. He says, that's none of your business. But what he was really saying to them, they belong to the secret providential workings of the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And aren't you glad you don't know what the future holds? We just know ultimately what it holds for us. The future is a secret thing. And man is prevented from knowing that. As we see things happening in this day and age, you watch television very much, um, you read newspapers, particularly if you watch stuff on the internet, you know if it's on the internet, it's gotta be true. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln told me that. <laughs> but no so-called psychic, no so-called medium or soothsayer or prophet can tell you what'll happen tomorrow. No one but God knows what the future holds or when Jesus will come for his people and anyone who says anything different is deceiving you. While no human may know what the future holds, we do know who holds the future, don't we? Our Father stands outside of time. I heard a, a good illustration of that. Um, I wasn't gonna mention it, but it's, God keeps bringing it back to my mind, so I guess I ought to. A good example of that, probably the best I've ever heard, is if you look at the world and, and time and everything as a, as, a, as a basketball, and God is at the top of the ball, and around the center, what would be the equator, is time, just the constant movement of time. And people from one time zone can't see what's in the next time zone, or the people there can't see what's in the next time zone. But God, because he's outside of time, can look down and he can see the whole thing as it's all in one instant happening. God sees the present, the past, and the future as one time. So our Father stands out outside of time. But there are some encouraging things about that. With him standing outside of time, he already knows what's going to happen to us. The psalmist has said the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And Proverbs says, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I can tell you from personal experience, that's so true. When I left seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, 1967, I didn't know what I was gonna do. God hadn't opened a door. He hadn't shown me what I was gonna do. And a friend of mine that I had known from the days that we were co-directors of Youth for Christ back in 1958 here in Charleston, called me on the phone and he said, what are you gonna do? And I said, I don't know. It's a blank wall, I don't have any idea. No church has called me. He said, well, I'm calling you. He said, I'm starting a new work in Maine. Maine, that's the other end of the earth. <laughs> and it's cold. And it's February. <laughs> and it's real cold and they got a lot of snow. I said, Carl, you can have me for six months I'm going home to Charleston, where it's warm. And I told God that's what I was going to do. And he chuckled. <laughs> and 32 years later, he let me come home. 
So we don't know what the future holds, but we do know that God is holding that future. And that's a comforting thought, isn't it? Our world is full of pain and sorrow, heartache. None of us knows whether tomorrow is going to be better or worse than what this day has been. But regardless of the path that holds us, our Father not only walks with us, he also walks ahead of us. When we get there, we find out that God's already there and he's already got the plan laid out. So things may be confusing to us. Today we're here, tomorrow we may be in eternity. Today the fair winds may be blowing around us. Tomorrow we might be in the midst of a terrible storm. And while the future may be shrouded in mystery as far as we're concerned, we have God's assurance that he's already there and that the future is well in hand. So what about you? Are you concerned about the tomorrow? Do worries, fears, doubts about tomorrow trouble you? We live in a troubling time. There's not a day that goes by that you can pick up the newspaper or hear on the radio or the television something else has happened. Uh, just time after time after time. I saw this morning that President Obama is planning for a new job and he's already put out some feelers for that. Secretary of the United Nations, United Nations General Secretary. That caused me alarm. But I'm not worried about it because it's, tomorrow is in God's hand. So if you've been born again, if you trusted in Jesus as your savior, you don't have anything to worry about. So it's a compelling departure, a confusing future, and yet the disciples faced a challenging task. Another element that had the attention of the disciples that day was the assignment that they were giving in verse 8. Jesus tells them that they will be witnesses to the world. And you know, beloved, witnessing, that causes a lot of Christians to sit back and say, oh, I don't know how to do that. How do I be a witness? You know what a witness is? A witness is somebody who tells the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and if you're taking that oath in a court, it's so help me God. But you testify as to what you know. I spent, in a bivocational situation, I spent 30 years in and out of courts. State courts, local courts, and the United States District Court. And if a witness is testifying, he can only testify, or she can only testify, to what you actually know. If Steve were to tell me something that Keith did, I can't testify to that because I don't know myself that that's true. Only Steve knows. Of course, Keith. But I have to testify to what I know. I'm reminded as well of a judge that I worked with for many years who said it's easy to be a judge. Both parties come into the courtroom, they raise their right hand, put their hand on a Bible, although they don't do that anymore, and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. They sit down and one of them starts lying. <laughs> he says, as a judge, all you've got to do is pick out the one that's telling the truth. <laughs> but that's all you have to do as a witness. You don't have to have this grand testimony. You just tell people what Jesus did for you. What Jesus did in Sam's life, that's not important to me. I mean, it's, it's good to know, that's not going to help me to be able to tell somebody else. I can say that, but nobody can argue with the fact that this is a change to life. 
This is a changed life. You have a changed life. So their mandate was to preach the gospel to every creature. We know that great commission in Matthew 28 that says, go into all the world. You know what's a better translation of go into all the world? Is as you are going, as you're going about your daily business, talk about Jesus. As you're going, talk about what he's done for you. I don't mean that you've got to do that with every single individual that you see, but when the Spirit of God moves on you to do something, I'll give you an example of an easy thing to do. Any of you ever pray before you eat in a restaurant? Any of you ever had a waitress standing at your table? Yeah, you have. You say, we're going to pray now. Is there anything I can pray for with you? That opens the door. Okay, well, we're not all called to be evangelists. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be Sunday school teachers. But we all have gifts that were given to us by the Holy Spirit of God, and we can give a witness to the change that's taken place in our lives. So that assignment was front and center in their minds as they watched Jesus disappear into the glory cloud. And beloved, we have that same message today. That hasn't changed. For the last three years, the disciples had watched Jesus do what he was sending them out to do. They'd heard him preach the gospel. They'd watched him love the lost. They'd seen him cross all social barriers. He'd used them too. He'd sent them out to preach. But there was a difference. When they went out to preach, Jesus sent them. And he was always there when they came back. But now, now he's going away and they're left behind to carry on without him. And surely they were filled with fear. How would they do it without him? How would they accomplish God's work? It's very simple. Jesus reminded them that even though he's going away, he's not leaving them here to do the task alone. He's sending the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you and I have dwelling within us. In verse 5, Jesus promises them that they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. That promise was fulfilled 10 days later at Pentecost. The night before he died, the Lord Jesus reminded his men that he would send someone to help them. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. Another comforter. The Greek has two words for another. We just have one. But in Greek, one word for another means another of a different kind. Another word means another of the same kind. And that's what Jesus is using here, that word that means another of the same kind. I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a teacher. I'm going to send you someone who is going to stay with you. And he's the same kind that I am. He didn't go into the Trinity and whatnot. He just simply said, I'm going to send you another of the same kind. And they knew what that meant. So Jesus told them in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit would empower them to carry out the mission. They're not going to have to do it alone. They were promised his power, his touch, and his blessings as they carried out their mission. Beloved, we're still here. And God has not changed his mind yet. We still have his power. We still have his touch. We still have his blessings. But let me ask you a question. Do you know why you're still in the world? You're here because God's not through with you yet. If he were through with you, you wouldn't be here. In 1963, I closed a revival in 
Texarkana, Arkansas, driving home in my little Volkswagen Beetle, going back to seminary. And a drunk teenager and a 58 Pontiac Bonneville. You guys that are old enough, you know what those were. They were Sherman tanks. Hit me head on. And I remember the ambulance crew saying, there's no sense hurrying now, nobody's alive in that mess. I thought, don't they know I'm here? <laughs> I'm alive, I'm alive. Why did I live through that mess? Just to give you a picture of it, the left front wheel of the, my Volkswagen was pushed up against the back seat. My left leg was between them. The engine of the Pontiac was sitting on my chest. Um, why did I live? Because God wasn't through with me yet, that's all. I had been able to do some things for him, but he still had more that he wanted me to do. And that's why you're still here. God leaves us here because of this world's problems with sin and pain and suffering so that we can be witnesses to his saving grace to a world that's just trapped in sin. He leaves us here. He leaves you here. He leaves me here so that the lost can see Jesus in us so that they can recognize that there is hope, there is salvation. Paul described it very well in Corinthians and then again in Ephesians when he said, you, the church at Corinth, are our epistle written on our hearts and read of all men. In other words, you are God's love letters of love and grace to a fallen world. When they read our lives, they should read of his love, his mercy, his grace, and his saving power. He uses the word workmanship in Ephesians 2.10. He says that we are his workmanship. I looked that word up because I didn't really know, I know what it means, but I thought there was more to it. And the word that we get workmanship from is the same Greek word that we get the word poem from. In other words, we're his workmanship. We're his poem to the world. We're poetry. We should be grace and saving power. That's why we should live for him and why should we should always be ready to share with the gospel, share the gospel with this lost world. So we have the same assignment to be about the Father's business. But in addition to the departure and the confusing future and the challenging tasks, there was a comforting promise. The mind of the disciples had to have been filled with many thoughts as they'd been given an, ex an excitement that far exceeded their abilities. They faced a future that was unknown. And to top it all off, they just watched Jesus rise up out of their sight, left everything behind, and disappeared into a cloud of glory. They must have been terrified, filled with questions about today and the, all the tomorrows that lay ahead of them. But they were so captivated by looking at the sight of Jesus going up that two angels, two men, stood by them. And the angels said to them, this same Jesus which is taken up to you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And they say, yes, he's gone away. And the angel said, yes, but he's coming back. He's coming again. And the implication is clear. The angels tell them to be about the business of the Lord. Do what Jesus told you to do, knowing that as they would work for him, as we work for him, that there's a day coming when he's going to return. And that's the same assurance that we live under today. Jesus is coming again. While the future unfolds around us, it's all of its uncertainties and questions, we 
can take confidence in the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. One day soon, beloved, Jesus is going to come for you and come for me, and he'll take us home to live with him. That's why Paul called it the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter what today holds, if you know him as your Savior, you can rejoice in the fact that he's coming again. But I'd ask you, what are you looking at today? What has your attention? What are you occupied with today? Are you caught up in the busyness of the world? Are you caught up with the hurriedness of 2016? You need to just let Jesus take control of your life. Don't worry about it. But I'd ask that question in a different way. For some of you this morning that are here, in a crowd this size, I believe that there are some here that don't know Jesus. And I'd ask the question differently. It's not what are you looking at, but what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Are you looking at this world and what it is and what it can offer? Are you looking at hope for your children and your grandchildren? Or are you looking at Jesus? If you're caught up with the wonder of a risen Savior who loves you, gave himself for you on the cross of Calvary, if you're caught up with Jesus, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. That means you're saved, you're ready to meet Jesus when he comes again. But if you're confused about the turns that life has taken, are you worried over the future and what it holds for you? If you are worried about today or tomorrow, I would challenge you, if you're a believer, to leave it in the hands of the Lord. He has you today, he has you tomorrow well in hand. But if not, if you're not looking for his coming, if the thought of his coming scares you, if you're not ready for his return, if you're not looking for him, you have a concern. If you don't know that today, if you were to die, slip into eternity today, goodness knows it's so easy to happen. You can get in your car today, we were talking about just briefly in Sunday school about that very thing about traffic. You want to ride down, you want to know if you're saved, you can ride down I-26 or I-77 or heaven forbid I-20 in Atlanta or I-95 through New York City. They're no different than I-26. They're all the same. You could die that fast. If you are not able to say with absolute certainty, I know, I know that I know that I know that I know without a doubt in my mind, if Jesus came today, if Jesus came this moment, right now, this moment in time, I'd be with him in heaven. If you can't say that, beloved, with an absolute certainty, I want you to listen to me very closely. Those of you that are Christians can be praying. But if you're not saved, if you're not sure, if you don't know for sure, how many times have you spoken to somebody and said, well, I hope I am. Or my God wouldn't send anybody to hell. You might say, well, you're right, your God wouldn't. But the God would. So if you're not sure, I want you to listen closely to me. First of all, accept the fact that you're a sinner. Oh, a sinner? No, no, I, I'm pretty good. No, you're a sinner. We all are. The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. I'm a sinner. 
Do I make mistakes? Do I say things I shouldn't say? Do I do things I shouldn't do? Do I have thoughts I shouldn't have? Certainly. The only difference is I'm a forgiven sinner. Jesus paid it all. When Satan stands before the Father and says, look at Don Holly, look what he did. Jesus could say it's paid in full. So we're all sinners, but you need to recognize that. And secondly, you must accept that as a sinner, you owe a penalty. There's a price to pay for it. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, physical death and then spiritual death, separation from God. And third, you must accept that Jesus Christ has already paid that sin penalty. It's paid in full. Paid in full. Have you ever bought a car and you financed it? You know, you don't own it, the bank does. I once had a car and somebody asked me how I could afford a car like that and I said, I don't, I can't. I said, I own the, the cigarette lighter, that little thing that pops out of it. <laughs> the bank owns the rest of it. But the point that I'm getting at is that when you, when I got the final thing from the bank that said, this debt is paid in full. Oh, that was a good day. It was the day before the car broke down. <laughs> but it was paid in full. And that's what Jesus has done with us. Our debt is paid in full. And beloved, if you don't know for an absolute certainty that you would be in heaven with him today, if you should slip into eternity, you need to first recognize that you need a savior, that you're a sinner, and that Jesus died for you, that you owe a penalty. And that separation, that penalty is separation from God. Jesus shed his blood on that cross to pay our sin penalty. There's a chorus that goes something like this. He owed a debt. I owed a debt I could not pay our housing. <coughs> he paid a debt he didn't owe because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. And I needed someone to wash my sins away. That someone is Jesus. You must accept the fact that he's your only hope to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Is that arrogant? No, no. That just acknowledges who he is. No amount of good works is going to save you. Church membership isn't going to save you. I was thinking the other day about all the churches that I have been a member of as I've moved around the country. Because every time I go somewhere, I would join with a local church. But that's not going to save me. It's just Jesus who's going to do that. Church membership won't save you. Baptism won't save you. You're saved by grace through faith. And the Bible says that that's not ours. That's a gift from God, and you have to accept the gift. Jesus paid your penalty on the cross. It's already paid. He rose from the dead and then he ascended up to heaven where he is right now.